it's not just about building a personal connection with kids. Super important to do that. But are we also then backing that up in the classroom in the way that we talk to them? Yes, I know that you like this band and that you're really into music, but am I also respecting what you have to say about this content area, even if I don't necessarily agree with it, even if it's not what I was trying to teach at this moment? Can we give kids that opportunity? Because until we do that, we can't really back away more to let them do more. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. And I'm Ed's co-host, Bo Brusco, a former English language arts teacher and multimedia journalist. And it is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you our guest today, Miriam Platinsky. Miriam is an author and instructional specialist who addresses challenges in both teaching and leading across schools with a wide range of differentiated needs. She has taught and led at the Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland for more than 20 years and lives in Silver Spring, Maryland. Her first of three books to come out in the last year, Teach More, Hover Less, How to Stop Micromanaging Your Secondary Classroom, is a practical guide to a student-centered instructional approach that removes the necessity of teacher micromanagement. And I can't wait to dive into that. How's it going, Miriam? It is going well. Thank you for asking. Let's uh, start um, about the origins of your book and when you felt the first spark that led to its creation. So essentially, it goes back a long way. I was uh, teaching, uh, I'm an ELA, that's my background, and I was teaching, you know, pretty standard ELA classes and a creative writing teacher at the school that I was working in uh, moved on. And I don't know why I asked that day, but I went up up to my department chair and I said, hey, anybody teaching this class? And she asked, do you have any background in creative writing? And I said, no, not really. (laughs) But somehow it became the class that I was, I was teaching. And what happened in that class, it it felt like an accident at first. Uh, There are all these projects that students would do, all these writing assignments. And then the first semester or so, I was a lot more prescriptive because that was really the way that I was. That was how I'd been trained and, and, and thought about teaching. But then I noticed that all the kids in the class were there for the same reason. They had elected, it was an elective, to come into the class and express themselves through writing. And they were saying things like, well, this is not a project I feel really passionate about. What if I write, I'm writing a book, and I would think, wow, you're writing a book. Um, Can I write a chapter and turn that in instead of this other project? And I started to wonder why I kept saying no. You know, was there a really good reason? Because sometimes when kids ask if they can try alternate pathways, there are very good reasons for saying no. There are some curriculum goals we have to meet, and and we can get into all that. But I was saying no more than I needed to. And so gradually, I really let go of a lot of what was happening. And essentially the the result was magical. Kids would be so excited and so engaged and so focused. And I started to think, well, what if I do this in my other classes? What if I try this in, you know, a more curriculum based class? Again, not necessarily all the time with, with quite as much freedom, but try to apply what I can where I can. And that was also really effective. And it got to the point where I would try to, as a school leader, because I moved into school leadership, explain some strategies to teachers, and it just wasn't translating the way I wanted it to. 
So in a way, I think writing this book was a little bit, um, a little selfish maybe because I wanted to communicate something that I hadn't been communicating before, but also really written for the benefit of teachers, which is how do we, how do we let go? How do we do that in a very active way? And so the book itself, the way it's structured, really more tools than writing just so that you can dig in and try a bunch of things. And so it's really illustrative of, of that approach of that, what I call hover free approach as opposed to the helicopter teaching model. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, and there's so much in there already that I want to talk about, but let's just start with uh, sort of the, the basic premise. Can you tell us what hovering is, uh, at least how you define it, and then maybe give us an example of what it might look like in the classroom? Hovering is really uh, exactly what it sounds like. The teacher presence is, is far too heavy in a classroom like that. And I, I feel you are hovering if you are leaving your classroom every day feeling completely tapped and exhausted feeling like you are trying to be everywhere at the same time, feeling like you're trying to play a game of whack-a-mole with student engagement or attention. So it really is a a trust and a control element of, I need to be here every day, making every piece of learning happen. If I'm not, they won't do it. It's really Mm -hmm. that mindset. And that comes into play, you know, we see that with much more teacher-directed methods, with uh, teachers really moving around, not in an intentional way, but maybe in a more frenetic or concerned way, just trying to be everywhere all at once. That's what hovering looks like. What you just described, uh, Miriam, makes me think about uh, how that kind of hovering environment, as you described, is perfect sort of soil to plant the seeds of learned helplessness. Uh, (laughs) does Does that sound fair to say? Absolutely fair to say. I mean, the more that we give people, the less we're listening and the less we give them the opportunity. I mean, it's the classic example of why wait time exists. Wait time exists so that when a student is given an opportunity to share what they know, we're supposed to wait five full seconds. We're supposed to actually count to five in our heads before we jump in. And But the average teacher waits 0.5 seconds, which is really a much shorter period of time. And they think they're helping. The intent is mm. to help. But what we're really doing is we're cutting off student thought before it can be processed and formed. And that, in turn, does create some enabling and some learned helplessness. One of my uh, mentors and uh, is uh, Ron Baghetto, Professor Ron Baghetto at University of Arizona, whose expertise is around creativity in the classroom. And he often talks about what he calls the tyranny of the lesson plan uh, in terms of the way teachers are taught to teach that says that if you're not hitting point A, B, and C in that order, something's wrong. Uh, And it doesn't leave room for the magic that can happen and any sense of spontaneity to happen. And I think that's basically kind of what you're you're tapping into and talking about hovering. Um, And uh, and so I guess, how do we change teacher education? You know, because that's kind of where these these bad habits are uh, are uh, born. You know, teacher education is such an interesting topic because it, it does vary so widely from district to district and from school to school. I teach teachers. I teach a course um, in the evenings uh, called The Skillful Teacher, where we really go back into, you know, it, it's not teaching 101, but it's how do we put some intention behind what we do? How do we create a classroom space where kids can speak more and we can listen more? And ultimately, what that means is that we embrace the mindset of, teaching as 
I know that we say this, it's a growth process, but we have to continue uh, making space and time for teacher education in ways that teachers really want to approach it. A lot of times, and I talk about this in my second book, professional development is done to teachers. It's not done in collaboration with teachers. We tell people what we think they should learn. They, you know, they either, sometimes they care, but most of the time they don't, and sometimes they pretend to care. But whatever's happening, the teacher training, it, it has to happen on the job, and there has to be you know, a, a, an interest in things that directly relate to the teacher's day. I think the reason that classes that are geared toward teachers for teachers that teachers also are part of facilitating are such a win is that you need someone in there who really understands the experience and what it's like. So there would have to be a whole other mindset about teacher training because right now the way that we look at it is you get your certification one way or another, you go into the classroom, you go through a period of evaluation that is then something somewhat intermittent afterward and then you're done. And that's just not the way we, we can do this, especially you know, if we think about what happened in 2020 when we transitioned into online learning and then we mm-hmm. transitioned back into schools with masks and what happened during that time. I think we're still seeing a lot of interesting ripple effects on kids and on teachers in how we deliver instruction and how kids receive it. We need some reminders about student-centered learning. It's really fallen by the wayside. We all know it's a good idea, but we haven't been doing as much of it. And there are reasons for that. Uh, I was just going to say with the Our Effective Communicators course, one of the things we talk about is uh, how journalistic learning kind of helps you make that shift where instead of being the sage on a stage uh, as a teacher, you become the guide on the side. And uh, one one of the things I want to kind of dive in here is really the, the student benefits of hovering less and thereby teaching more because like we talked about earlier, when it's so rigid and there's too much scaffolding, not only is there learned helplessness, but it really kind of uh, dissolves any opportunity for spontaneity and awe in the classroom. And often it's it's the unexpected student-led experiences that really are so impactful and really have a, a, a big uh, effect on students. Yeah. Well, to do that, you have to approach with a mindset of, of kids already coming to you with knowledge. They're already Mm. coming to you with something to contribute. Uh, I read this really uh, terrible (laughs) article several months ago. There was a, I think it was a Harvard professor who did a bunch of research. And uh, one of his big points was that student-centered learning is ruining American education because children are blanks, are blank slates. That's what, that's what he called them. (laughs) Are you serious? I'm serious. A a 94 year old professor decided that kids are, are blank because that used to yeah. be the philosophy of education that kids really needed to be filled as though they were these vessels. And, um, you know, he said they were really coming to us with, moth- with nothing. And I, I remember thinking, like, who comes to us with nothing? Like, really, really, you're saying nothing. And the way that kids can really dig in is, is to be seen on some level, um, not just as they're not experts. No one's saying go that far necessarily. Although they may be experts at certain things that we're not. I'm constantly in awe of what kids can do. But that they are valid. They have brains that we value. They have ideas that we value, that they are scholars and thinkers. And, and we're not just, and I talk about this a lot in chapter three, and this is what my, my third book is about. It's not just about building a personal connection with kids. Super important to do that. But are we also then backing that up in the classroom in the way that we talk to them? Yes, I know that you like this band and that you're really into music, but am I also respecting what you have to say 
about this content area, even if I don't necessarily agree with it, even if it's not what I was trying to teach at this moment, can we give kids that opportunity? Because until we do that, we can't really back away more to let them do more. Mm -hmm. I think that's why a lot of our work is is predicated on this um, notion of student choice and agency. Um, Often we uh, cite uh, self-determination theory, which basically talks about agency, competency, and relatedness. And they're almost like three legs of a tripod. And if any one of those has a deficit, like the tripod will probably topple over. So, you know, this, this sense that you're, you're not only just a passive learner sitting in a seat waiting to raise your hand to respond to a question, but that you're actually um, generating some of the curricular content um, and having choices and say in, in the kinds of topics and subjects that you're learning about. It's a, it's a whole shift um, that seems like sort of commonsensical, but, um, you know. It, it does. It's, it's also so misunderstood because the biggest pushback I've gotten from this this book is, well, so kids are the teachers now. You're just going to sit back and be lazy. <laughs> and I've heard that, you know, from a lot of quarters. And I've said, I think you're, you're under, misunderstanding the fundamental philosophy behind this. Teachers are still planning and executing the lessons. They are the experts. They are the content uh, drivers, if you will. They're the ones who have studied curriculum and instruction. But the how behind how that happens, how we deliver that and how kids receive it and how well we listen to them. You know, if if we decide every single time that we're the ones who have to give every piece of instruction and that kids can't do anything at all, um, especially as kids get older and older, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because they are capable of making choices and decisions from a very young age. I could, yeah, I can see where there might be a little bit of pushback in the sense of uh, crowded classrooms where there's more than maybe 30 or 32 students. And it sounds like what you're suggesting is a much more individualized approach because students do have different interests. And so how do you respond to that for teachers who might be in situations where, you know, they're saying that's all sounds great, but, you know, I'm just barely getting through the day, uh, and, you know, uh, What I would ask is, is it easier to get through the day teaching 36 kids the same thing at the same time, or is it easier to divide that group of 36 kids into three groups and have them rotating through what you were going to do anyway, but just perhaps on different days or at different times or saying, hey, you know, here are the three things we have to do by the end of this week. Wednesday's a choice day. You can pick one of the three to work toward and you can then as a teacher have space to move about the cabin. So it's, you know, it's really about how you're structuring, organizing the same thing that you would have done anyway. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Catelyn Tucker. She does a lot with uh, blended learning, but she talks about the concept of taking your agenda and turning it sideways, which is you're taking everything you were going to do anyway. But each of those agenda items becomes a separate station or choice based opportunity for kids. So your lesson planning process isn't that different. It's just what it looks like spatially in a classroom. And I'm not sure if one's easier than the other. I mean, yes, you're all packed in there like sardines if there are 36 of you, but you're going to be packed in there like sardines no matter what. Um, so it, it's really, are you, are you doing, are you providing at some point, not every day, not every moment, but at some point in the week, are you giving kids a chance to make some choices in how they how they learn because you know as adults we take this for granted i i do this every day i wake up i write in the early hours of the day because that's when it happens i know that if i wait it's not going to work so well as as i have that luxury i make decisions about my own process kids don't have that 
We don't mm. give that to them. We tell them when to work and how to work. And then we're surprised when we don't always get the best results. Yeah. Uh, what, what you're talking about right now regarding changing, uh, you know, tactics in the classroom to, to uh, hover less and teach more, uh, something implicit in that and something you uh, touched on in your book is the importance of experimentation. And I think that was an important part of your, the origins of, of this work too, was your experimentation in, in multiple classrooms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, young teachers who are really just trying their best and really do care about the kids, or maybe like we mentioned with a Harvard professor, older teachers who might be stuck in, in their ways and a little bit more traditional. Uh, what advice do you have to them uh, when it comes to experimentation in the classroom and, and changing things up? Because it, it, you know, it might be hard and it can feel really defeating at times. So yeah, what, what kind of insight do you have in, in that regard? So teaching is by nature experimental. I don't know that many effective teachers who do the same thing every year. They don't pick up their lesson plans and plop them into the next year and just keep chugging away. I mean, they might take pieces and bits of what they've done before, but but we are in a profession where we believe that failure is the way to learning. We believe that mistakes are to be celebrated. And, you know, that happens all the time. The, the best lesson plan in the world that we love so much explodes or implodes, whatever the word is, and we think, oh, no. Um, but we also know that it's not that the whole lesson needs to be thrown away. We need to re-examine it and figure out why it went wrong and where it went wrong. And, you know, and something that worked first period might not work seventh period. That also happens and why. And we're analytical like that. We're reflective. We talk shop with our colleagues. So, you know, the, the whole idea of experimentation, that is teaching. That's actually the glory. It's also the exhaustion, but it's the glory that we have the opportunity every single day to try this again. And, you know, again, that can lead to some other pitfalls. You know, teaching is second only to air traffic controlling and the most number of decisions made per day. We make on average 1,500 decisions a day, it's four per minute. No wonder you're tired and you go home not wanting to talk to anybody. But regardless of how you're doing it, that's going to be a nat just a natural byproduct of the profession. So what I say to people is when they're you know thinking about trying things from my book, if you're happy with how you're teaching and you think it's going great, if you truly think that, then don't do anything. However, if you are going home exhausted every day or you do feel like you're stagnating or kids aren't doing what they used to do for you or, you know, just keep going with this whole train of thought, maybe it's time to try just one thing, like one little thing and see where it leads. Can't hurt, might help. You, you use the term uh, warm demander. What do you mean by that? Warm demander is also one of those really big misunderstood terms in education. So when we look at like a grid, so teachers who hold their students to high standards and high expectations are the most ideal kinds of teachers. They believe their students can meet the standard of learning and they expect them to do that. They believe in them. When we're warm demanders, we have those, those lovely beliefs in student learning. We express those. We're very affirming. But demander means we are not lowering that standard. We're keeping it where it belongs where things get real tricky is when people do the warm without the demander. So I don't really believe my kids can do it. So I'm going to lower that standard just a little bit and they'll meet that. And then I'll be like, Hey, good for you. That's not warm demanding. Warm demanding is the high standard and the high expectation together. You don't let that go. And no matter how you're teaching, hovering or not, that's your standard. It can't, it can't move. Well, and I think that has a great psychological effect on on students too, because some of the, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess 
there are probably a good many students who maybe don't have that uh, that kind of push from uh, any adults, uh, you know, whether they're a coach or, or their own parents or family members. And so getting that kind of push, that warm, that warm, gentle expectation uh, demanding, I, I suppose, from from a teacher can can be transformative, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, one question I always ask my my adult students, my adult learners when I'm teaching a class, because this is the very beginning of our of our learning trajectory is, did you have a teacher who believed in you when you were in school? And it's always pretty evenly split. I did or I didn't. And I became a teacher because I did or I became a teacher because I didn't. It, it's amazing how that can be a motivator one way or another. Um, but it, it's so important for kids to have an experience with an adult in a school building who does show that belief in their learning capacity. Otherwise, we have mindset difficulty. And that's why the first the first stage of Have a Free Teaching in the book is mindset. And you're taking all these mindset quizzes. What do I really think about the kids in front of me? And you're challenging, maybe I have beliefs, but they're contradicted in action. And is that a problem that I have as a teacher? Because a lot of the time we say something or we feel something, we say all the right things, but then we get in the classroom and we don't see how it's not necessarily playing out the way we think it is. Hmm. I'm curious about where you are um, weighing in on on some of the culture wars that are going on, you know, banning of books and uh, without getting you know political here, but just I, I but it's hard. It's a tough time to be a teacher. I can imagine. I mean, if I I can't I can't imagine being a social studies teacher right now as we enter another um, you know, presidential election that's bound to be um, complicated. A doozy. That's what I'd like to say. It's going to be a doozy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, or an ELA teacher. I wrote about, I wrote an article in Education Week about this about a year ago, maybe more. Uh, time, is, time is subjective these days about book banning. <laughs> um, because, you know, as someone who works in English language arts and who believes, obviously, we're pretty much against book censorship. We think it's a bad thing. Um, the way that people, the reasoning they have behind banning books is, is so illustrative of the lack of recognition that educators get as experts. And what I mean by that is when we approve books for curriculum, whether they're in social studies or ELA or what have you, we're doing it to match content standards. We don't teach books, we teach standards. We teach skills and the books and the content and the articles are used to get kids to a certain place. And when you know, very often school boards or parent groups. And I wrote this article around the time this t- that the Tennessee school board banned Mouse, M-A-U-S, by uh, Alan Spiegelman. It was a graphic novel about the Holocaust, and they were saying that it was highly inappropriate. Now, mind you, all the images in the book are of animals, not people, because it's, it's allegorical in that sense. They were objecting to all sorts of things, but they didn't really understand the book or the content standards that it met or why that book would be picked as opposed to a different book. They didn't have that expert lens. And so what's happening is that people are having knee-jerk reactions to things. And half the time when you talk to people who want to ban books, they'll admit freely that they haven't read the book. Or they have maybe only read a summary or a piece of it. They really don't know a whole lot about what they're objecting to. And a question I also have is, what do you think your kids are doing in their free time? You know, whether Mm -hmm. it's TikTok or, or other social media, anything they're accessing without adult supervision after hours or before hours or the cyberbullying they're experiencing, I mean, we can make a giant list, is a whole lot more harmful than the book they're accessing in class with a teacher to guide them through any of the controversy and to frame it for them. So, you know, you're right. 
Ed, it's not a good time to be a teacher. If I'm in Florida, it's not a good time to be a teacher and some of our other states because, you know, one of the big things that happened the last couple of weeks was this AP psychology. First of all, being removed from the Florida curriculum, then last minute being put back, but you can't teach this part of it. And I was talking about this with my, my teenager. I have a few teenagers at home. And one of them was saying, well, if you're not teaching that unit because the state won't let you, what happens when you take the AP test if they have a question? that relates to that unit. Do you just fail that part of the test? It's like, yeah, we're curating. We're curating thought in a yeah. way that's very- We also- Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think we also know the, the very thing that you, you ban or say you shouldn't read is the one thing that the students all look to go make sure that they do read. And so it's, it's kind of almost, um, you know, it doesn't make sense to, to call attention to these, these uh, issues. Yeah, it's a, it's a prime example of reverse psychology, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I, what I was saying was that, um, you know, the, the very thing that we, we, we ban is the thing that kids go seek to find. Um, you know, it's like, yes. so it's... Yes. My dream is for my books to get banned. <laughs> I will get so much traffic and so many readers that people will just ban my books. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, don't don't go read her book, guys. It's just full of nonsense. <laughs> It'll give you uh, brain worms. Yeah. It's yeah. dangerous. It's yeah. so dangerous. It's oh, oh. a woman thinking. Oh, yeah. no. Don't let a woman think. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've seen the Barbie movie, but that was also yeah. a lot of commentary yeah. there in that movie. Well, uh, yeah. one of the things I wanted to talk about um, with Teach More and Hovering Less is uh, one of the techniques used, uh, or I guess one of the techniques you suggest using in the classroom to sort of uh, promote student agency and also a technique that's just been around for a while. If you go back and look at like uh, love, teaching with love and logic that, that got really popular in the eighties uh, is this idea of just giving students choice, you know, students choices. And, and it doesn't even have to be like big choices necessarily, but just like, Hey, do you guys want to, or would you like to write your assignment in a blue pen or a black pen today? You know, <laughs> when, when you turn in your assignment, uh, or when you when you complete the assignment, do you want to draw me a picture on the back or start reading a book? You know, just small choices like that, right? But that that can be powerful. It doesn't have to be big. Well, exactly. This is one thing also that I say to people who say, "Oh, but student-centered learning, making that shift is such a big thing." And it it could be if you if you really want to to do it that way. Okay, but my my method is to try one thing at a time, pick one strategy, see if it works, go from there. Just little baby steps, and then. You know, and this, this, this is actually what the book that I'm writing is about. The, the smaller our habits are as we stack them on top of each other, it turns into something big before we even realize what's happening. So the more accustomed you get to giving kids choice, the more likely it is that you'll keep incorporating that and you'll become more successful with it and more comfortable with it because it doesn't happen overnight. And if you have that expectation, you're probably setting yourself up. But one of the things we, we think is really powerful about our uh, journalistic learning initiative with the effective communicators course is that they uh, they choose a topic that is of interest to them and that's that's relevant to them and uh, I think that is so important uh, when it comes to teaching more and hovering less because in order to lead the students along they have to have that intrinsic motivation they have to have that choice right and maybe maybe that's where we we uh, the last bit of discussion we have here is the importance of intrinsic motivation in the classroom. 
Yeah, it's one of those things and people say that, you know, how do I shift motivation from being intrinsic to extrinsic? But I'm going right back to habits for a second, because I think that motivation is hard to, you can't force intrinsic motivation on somebody. You can create habits that will make that more likely to occur in a natural way. So, you know, once kids realize that they have some some value that you see them as being valuable and that you're giving them chances to do that. In so many classes, we only see one side of a kid and it's often not the best side just because it might not be their favorite content area or it might be the wrong time of day or there are all sorts of things that are playing into what we see. So the more we can uncover their layers of, of, of what kids really appreciate, the more they will rise to meet expectation and really become more, more intrinsically uh, motivated to do the work. But a huge part of that is, is us meeting them and saying, okay, well, um, every week I'm going to ask you to lead part of this, or every week we're going to try doing this together. We're going to create some shared responsibility in this classroom and you'll, you'll meet me more and more with each passing week. So there has to be that, that gradual handing off a little bit of, of, you know, the, the, the control that you so much hold on to as a teacher, you yeah. got to let go a little but, bit. But I mean, how important is that to, to helping humans, right? It's just such a <laughs> such an essential human experience that I think educators and, uh, you know, uh, leaders such as yourself are, are providing them. And I, yeah, it's just, it's really great, great work. And uh, again, uh, Miriam's book out right now is Teach More, Hover Less. Uh, you can get it uh, pretty much everywhere books are sold. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.